Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. We have a jam-packed episode for you today. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to start out by answering a couple of commonly asked questions, common questions that come through my website, through the email contact button. I receive uh, lots of interactions every day, and I'm so thankful to all of you who have written in. I'm sorry that I'm not able to keep up with it like I would like to in a timely manner. But when a question keeps kind of getting asked over and over again, that always signals me, okay, it's time to make a video or a podcast or something to address this question. So this first question we're going to talk about is how can I know if the author that I'm reading or the speaker that I'm listening to or even the pastor that is pastoring my church, how do I know if they are a progressive Christian or not? Are there signs? What what should I look for? Uh, What should I look for what they believe? What should I look for for what they deny? And so here's my answer to that question, how to tell if your favorite speaker, author, podcaster, blogger, pastor is a progressive Christian. So have you ever been listening to your favorite Christian podcast and you're left scratching your head because of a confusing statement that the speaker makes about the Bible? Or maybe you've been in church and your pastor preaches a sermon that seems to cast a negative light on the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Or maybe you got a red flag when you were reading a Christian book and you come across a really unfamiliar definition of the gospel. Well, there's a really good chance you might be listening to or reading something published by a progressive Christian. So progressive Christianity is a movement that's infiltrating and influencing the evangelical church. Uh, Some of the most high-profile Christian leaders are a part of it. This movement seeks to reinterpret the Bible, reassess historic doctrines, and redefine core tenets of the faith, all while claiming the title Christian. They boast a high view of the Bible, and it's sweeping up many unsuspecting Christians into a false view of who God is and how he saves people. But sometimes it can be difficult to spot. So I'm going to give you a list of beliefs. Now, this is not comprehensive. This isn't a catch-all for every progressive Christian. But progressive Christians will typically deny one or more of the doctrines in the first list, and then they'll affirm one or more in the second. So if you suspect your favorite Christian thought leader is progressive, check out these denials and these affirmations. So first, the denials. So your favorite author, speaker, or pastor might be a progressive Christian if they deny the atonement. So often progressive Christians will refer to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as horrific or unnecessary. The idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son, this implicates the moral character of God, implicating him, and it turns him into a divine abuser. So often you'll hear the phrase cosmic child abuse. 
The second thing you're going to look for is a denial of biblical authority or inspiration. So in the progressive church, the Bible is viewed more like an ancient travel journal rather than the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God. So the biblical writers are viewed as well-meaning ancient people who were doing their best to understand God in the times and places in which they lived— but they were not necessarily speaking for God. So scripture also is seen as contradictory, not internally coherent, and not authoritative for Christian life. The third thing they might deny is that we have a sin nature. So the doctrine of original sin is just roundly rejected in progressive Christianity with the idea of original blessing in its place. Progressive Christians don't typically deny that sin exists or that it's a bad thing, but they often deny the idea that we have some sort of a sin nature that was passed down to us from Adam and Eve. The next thing they might deny is that sin separates us from God. So without a concept of original sin or a sin nature passed down, progressive Christians will often teach that sin isn't what separates us from God, but it's our own self-imposed shame. So in the progressive view, it's often taught that we simply need to realize that we were never separated in the first place, that we are beloved and accepted by God just as we are. The next thing they might deny is the deity of Jesus. Now, certainly not all progressive Christians will deny Jesus' deity, but this doctrine tends to be downplayed in the progressive church. So the concept of the cosmic Christ or Christ consciousness is sometimes presented as our ultimate goal, that Jesus is just a model and exemplar of someone who was christened as both human and divine, and we can follow his example by finding the divine within ourselves. The next thing they might deny is the physical resurrection of Jesus. Again, just like the deity of Jesus, not every progressive Christian denies the physical resurrection. But the idea that Jesus was bodily raised back to life is often seen as less important or significant than the meaning we can draw from the idea of resurrection or the story of Jesus' resurrection. The other thing they might deny is the virgin birth. So in the progressive church, the virgin birth and other miraculous events can be downplayed or ignored, or like the resurrection, viewed as less important than the life lessons we can learn from reading the stories. Another denial you might see among a progressive Christian is a denial of the Trinity. So a denial of the deity of Jesus would naturally also be a denial of the Trinity, but some progressive Christians take it even further and affirm the view of pantheism, which states that the universe is God. Now, others will affirm a slightly less radical view, and that's called panentheism, which is the belief that God and the world are interrelated and interdependent. So God is in all and all is in God. And this implies that God is somehow dependent upon creation, which casts serious aspersions on the nature of the Trinity. The other denial you might see is the sinlessness of Jesus. So you're not going to find many progressive Christians who outright declare that Jesus was a sinner. But Jesus' humanity tends to be emphasized. For example, in Matthew 15, Jesus tells the Syrophoenician woman, it is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, this is viewed as Jesus having racial biases that were recognized and corrected during this exchange. 
So those are some Christian doctrines that progressive Christians might deny, but there are also some things that they will probably openly affirm. And the first one that they will affirm is LGBTQ relationships and marriage. So one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is the shift on issues of sexuality and gender. So there's almost universal acceptance of same-sex relationships and marriage, a belief in the validity of transgenderism, and a rejection of cisgender norms in the progressive church. Another thing your favorite author or speaker might affirm that might show their hand as being a progressive Christian is a belief in universalism or universal reconciliation. So the primary view of heaven and hell in the progressive church is universalism or some version of universalism. So this is the idea that no one will be punished in hell and everyone will eventually be saved and restored to right relationship with God. Some progressive Christians will still say that Jesus is the only way, but they believe that he will save everyone. The next thing they might affirm is critical theory or what is more commonly known as a social justice gospel. In progressive Christianity, the gospel isn't seen primarily as the good news of God saving sinners and reconciling them to himself. Instead, social justice issues become the heart of the gospel message, with what one does being viewed as more important than what one believes. So often the secular framework of critical theory is embraced where the world is viewed through the lens of oppressed versus oppressor. Another view they may affirm is the view of pluralism. So religious pluralism is the idea that all roads lead to God, and no one religion holds the ultimate truth when it comes to who God is and how he reveals himself to the world. So often progressive Christians will tout the mantra, everyone has a seat at the table, and they mean that all creeds and religions are true in their own way, and the people who embrace them are equally accepted by God. And another view that's promoted in the progressive church is called perennialism. And this is the idea that although different religions look different on the outside, at their core, they all share the same truth. They all come from the same source and share the same ultimate or divine reality. And often it's taught that this divine reality can be discovered through mysticism and contemplative practices. So the next time you're reading a book or listening to a podcast or sermon or scrolling through social media, put the writer or speaker who claims to be Christian to the test. Do they deny one or more doctrines in the first list? Do they affirm one or more in the second? Well, that's a good indication that you are indeed following a progressive Christian leader. Okay, so I hope that that answer was helpful to you in your discernment process when you're trying to figure out who should I listen to, what voices are biblically solid and sound. And the next question we're going to talk about is what is the gospel according to progressive Christianity? Of course, we have the historic Christian gospel. How does that differ from the progressive gospel? What do they put in its place? Take a listen. A few years ago, I wrote a book review of a book that was very popular at the time. It was marketed as a Christian self-help book, and my hope was just to shine some light on some of the ideas and show how they contrast with biblical ideas. I also included a small section where I gave a very short gospel presentation, and that's because I wanted anyone who might be reading this other book, if they read my review, they might also get to see what the real gospel looks like.
That book review did have quite a big reach, and the responses to the post were what interested me the most. Some of the responses were thanking me for writing something that gave them a biblical viewpoint on how to answer some of their friends who were reading this book, and then on the other side of things, uh, there was a lot of vitriol, a lot of people telling me I should just keep my mouth shut and mind my own business, and so there seemed to be no neutral ground. Nobody was just like, "Meh, okay, it's it's." Fine. People either really loved it or they really hated it. So here are a couple of examples of responses that I got to the post. So I opened up one email and it said, "When I read your post, a few silent tears ran down my face. It was full of grace, full of truth." The very next message I opened basically cussed me out. And so this was really interesting because you have one book review and two radically different reactions. And so I began to notice in the comment section that a number of the more divergent comments and messages were centered around my presentation or my explanation of the Christian gospel. Some found it really repulsive. Others found it life-giving. Uh, so there was no neutral ground with that. But that's kind of what the gospel does, doesn't it? It divides and it unites. In fact, in direct reference to how the gospel would actually divide people, Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He also prayed that his true followers would be united in him. But these extreme reactions to the gospel are nothing new. Take, for example, the atonement of Jesus. Here's a quote from Charles Wesley in 1739. He said, He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Now contrast that with Michael Gunger's tweet from 2017, also about the atonement. He wrote, That God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful. It's horrific. So why does Charles Wesley find the blood of Jesus to be soul-saving good news, and yet Michael Gunger finds it to be gruesome and horrific? Well, it all comes down to how someone defines the word gospel. So the word gospel literally just means good news. It's used a lot in the Bible. Christians say it all the time. The Apostle Paul said he wasn't ashamed of it, and anyone who preaches a different one should be cursed. He called it the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. Jesus called it the gospel of the kingdom. Christians have generally described the gospel as the narrative arc of God's redemptive acts throughout history. So it involves about four things. Creation, this is how things began. The fall, this is how things got broken. Redemption, this is how things will get fixed. And then finally, restoration, and this is how things will look once they are fixed. So for 2,000 years, the Christian worldview has had very specific answers to these questions. So first, how did things begin? Well, God made the world and he called it good. How did things get broken? Sin. How will things get fixed? Okay, bear with me because this part is a little bit more complicated. You see, God is just. He's holy. And this is actually really good news for anyone who's ever been abused, oppressed, or mistreated in any way. It means that injustice will be paid for, so no sin will go unpunished. In other words, ISIS won't get away with it. That sounds great if you're talking about a terrorist or a serial killer, but aren't we all sinners? Yeah, it goes for us too. All sin must be paid for. So this is where Jesus comes in. God took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, and died a horrifying death to take the sins of the world upon himself. He was raised from the dead, and whoever puts their trust in Jesus as their Savior will be reconciled to God and find eternal life. 
So how will things look once they are fixed? Those who reject God's free gift of forgiveness in this life will get what they want. God will quarantine them and all evil in a place of eternal punishment called hell. For those who receive his forgiveness, who want to be with him forever, he'll wipe away every tear in the new heaven and new earth, and there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more death. So, of course, entire books have been written exploring all the deeper meanings and metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what happened on the cross, but this is the Christian gospel in a nutshell. Now, let's contrast that with the progressive Christian gospel. So, everything I just explained is something progressive author Brian McLaren calls the six-line Greco-Roman narrative. He lays out the points a bit differently, but it's the same storyline. So, along with many others, he rejects this view of the gospel. He suggests that this six-line narrative is nothing more than a copycat philosophy that was swiped from Plato and Aristotle. McLaren claims that the true gospel can only be found by reading the Jesus story through a Jewish lens. But by Jewish lens, he means that Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is not about who's in or out or who goes to heaven or hell when they die. It's about confronting systems of oppression in the here and the now and ushering in God's dream for creation. He explains that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Instead, this liberator king came to announce a new kingdom that is much bigger than a new religion, and in fact, it has room for many religious traditions within it. So I agree that we should understand the Jewish context within which Jesus lived and carried out his ministry. But the problem is that McLaren's Jewish lens and the New Kingdom focus reads more like a political manifesto championing causes like healthcare reform, green energy, climate change, and a healthy, sustainable, and regenerative economy. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things, but that's not the gospel. McLaren's main beef with the historical gospel seems to be that it's just like a get-out-of-hell-free card or a type of metaphysical fire insurance where you can get your soul saved and then ignore the world around you. But that's not biblical Christianity. I can wholeheartedly agree with him that if that is someone's view of the gospel, they've got it all wrong. So it has to be noted that throughout history, Christians have confronted oppression, impacted their societies for good, and had a strong emphasis on helping the poor, orphans, and widows. We haven't always done it perfectly, but the historic understanding of the gospel sees these good works as a sign that our faith is alive and not dead. We get this from James 2.26. It doesn't throw sin, atonement, and heaven and hell out the window in exchange for building a better home here on earth. So there you have it, two very different ideas about what the word gospel means. These are two ideas that contradict each other at every turn, and they elicit very different reactions. But we can actually expect this to happen. So when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he explained that God was using him and others to, quote, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere, end quote. He went on to say that not everyone found that smell to be so sweet. Some thought it smelled like a rotting corpse. This is because the real gospel confronts our personal sin, the sin we cling to and inherently love, sin that deserves death. So even if we work together to build a better society, we will still be rotten to the core without repentance and the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Only when we grasp how treacherous our sin is can we recognize how beautiful the gift of God's grace is. This is why a bloodless gospel is not good news at all.
To some, that message is the fragrance of life, and to others, it's the stench of death. There's really no middle ground. As the Apostle Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So recently, I got to travel to Southern California to be a part of the MAVEN conference there in Laguna Hills. And honestly, I love going to these apologetics conferences because it's so great to get around other apologists who, frankly, are way smarter than I am. And I learn so much from these guys. And so I got to spend a couple days with Jay Warner Wallace and Brett Kunkel, Thaddeus Williams, Sean McDowell, and some others who just brought some great information to church leaders and to parents who are ministering to the next generation. And so I just, I really want to encourage you to check out the ministry of uh, Maven and Brett and his wife, Aaron. So you can find them at maventruth.com. But one of the really fun things that I got to do this time was we brought all of my camera equipment and we brought some audio equipment. So I got to sit down with some of these guys and ask them some apologetics type questions. And I really thought their answers were so good and so valuable. We put them up on YouTube already, but I'd love to bring them to you here on the podcast. And so coming up, we're going to ask Thaddeus Williams some questions about social justice versus biblical justice. Where are some of these phrases like whiteness and white fragility and white guilt? Where is this all coming from? And then we're going to ask Sean McDowell about his engagement with the research regarding Gen Z and what actually might make Gen Z, that's the the generation that's about 20 and under right now, what, what actually might make them vulnerable to accepting a false gospel? But the first question we're going to ask is to Jay Warner Wallace, who's just written a wonderful book that I will be endorsing, and we'll be having him back on the podcast once the book is out. But it's all about this person of interest. It's all about Jesus and his mark on history and what we can actually know about Jesus, even if we didn't have a Bible, even if all the New Testaments in the entire planet ceased to exist all in the same moment, what what could we still know about Jesus? And so one of the questions that I see a lot, and one of the questions I even had when I was uh, sort of going through this rebuilding process of my faith, was why did Jesus come in, in the specific time that he did come? Why didn't he come sooner? Because certainly there were lots of people who lived and died before he came. So why then? Why that moment? So check out his answer. This is Jay Warner Wallace. Yeah, so so I kind of was look. We look at cases that are difficult to solve because we don't have enough information to solve them. Like a nobody missing case, you know, where we don't have any any crime scene. Just a report that this woman's disappeared, and it turns out her husband killed her. But you have no crime scene to investigate. So I just thought I wanted to look at the person of Jesus, both from the inside the crime scene and from outside the crime scene. So at first I wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, which really was just about what does the crime, what does the evidence in Scripture tell us about that three-year period related to Jesus. But then I thought, well, what if I didn't have that? What if there was nothing to, to look at? What if every bit of Christian scripture had been destroyed? All I would have was the history that led up to Jesus and the history that followed Jesus. Would I still know enough about this person to know who he was? Mm. To know that to, to even be able to reconstruct the claims of scripture without the scriptures. Uh, and from unusual places. And I always call this in front of a jury, I always talk about how we're going to investigate the fuse that preceded the explosion of the murder and the fallout that occurred after the explosion of the murder. And that's how we're gonna demonstrate who caused the murder. So it's the fuse and the fallout. So I thought, well, I could do the same thing with Jesus. I could examine the fuse that led up to the appearance of, this is what you're talking about. And as I looked at that fuse, 
I wondered, like, what, what are the aspects of culture and of, of human history that led up to this period of time that we have, for some reason, divided in, from BCE to CE mm -hmm. or from BC to AD? Well, I think there are a couple of different uh, strands of that fuse. I think there's a spiritual strand. I think there's a, a kind of a cultural strand. And I, and I think there's um, a, a prophetic strand. So, so what I looked at and said, okay, why is it that so many religions existed before Jesus and that there are similarities mm -hmm. in the gods, not just to Jesus, but to each other and then also to Jesus. Yeah. There are certain aspects of God worship that are common. And I, so I went back and I looked at all the major deities that preceded Jesus and I asked the question, what do they share in common? Like, what is the common stuff that pops up? I can go, oh, yeah, I see that more. And I had to read through them a couple of times because I thought I had identified what I liked, and then I realized, no, actually, I missed a few. Mm. Went back, and I had to reread the other ones. Did I, did I miss them over there, too? I ended up with 15 common characteristics of deities that are also common to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And people have offered these as evidence that Jesus is just another copied mythology. Right. We hear that all the time. Right, that's right. But as it turns out that if you examine that history, you'll see that not every one of those mythologies has all 15 attributes. They often have five, six, seven, maybe at the most eight or nine, mm -hmm. right? They're missing certain pieces. And they are all common expectations you would have if you're an ancient person who's thinking about God. You would think, well, you know, he's going to be able to work miracles, right? Well, yeah, if your God doesn't work miracles, he's probably not a God. So that's a very common feature of ancient deities. Uh, he's born of royalty in some way. Well, yeah, you would think, okay, he's going to be special when he appears to us. He's going to be special in some way. So I can see you imagining that. So I looked at all 15 of these attributes. Only one deity possesses all 15. Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. The rest possess some fraction of the 15. And it seems to me that if God was going to appear to us, naturally He would create us in His image and we would have certain expectations. And we might craft all kinds of mythologies that express these expectations. And once they're all in place and being worshipped, there's a window in which if God was really to appear in that window, everyone who has a piece of that expectation would go, whoa, that dude's the real McCoy. That yeah. guy's got all of it. Yeah. And you go, wow. So it seems to me that there's a window then. So I simply looked at history and said, when do these forms of worship begin? When do they end on the timeline? And that gives you an overlap period mm -hmm. of when all these deities are being worshipped at the same time with all these 15 common expectations. If God was to arrive in that period, and it was maybe a few hundred years, maybe more than that. So it's a pretty wide window. Yeah. So then if you overlap the next piece of the fuse, which is really like the culture of, the, you know, well, at what point is the known world occupied enough by a power that can provide peace, a road system, a postal service, uh, all of these things that actually allowed the story of this deity to spread across all cultures. Well, that's the Roman Empire, right? Because right. the Roman Empire was very tolerant of lots of other religious views as long as you also worshipped the Roman pantheon. So they embraced all of these views. They provided a, the Pax Romana, which is you know, a 200-year period of peace. Well, now if you overlap that period in which you have peace and roads, because the money you used to spend on wars, they're now spending on roads. If you took that period of time, that's a much smaller window. Overlap it against the spiritual window. Now the window is even smaller. If God was to appear there, not only would he meet everyone's expectations, he would also be in a position to travel, the, the word could travel. Rome, for example, Paul could actually travel if there were roads to walk on. That's right, yeah. Okay, then the third piece is, well, the Jews had an expectation of a coming Messiah. And the Daniel's prophecy is the best. 
he's arguing in his prophecies that between the proclamation to restore Jerusalem and the temple and the destruction of the temple, the Messiah would come. Well, that puts a starting point in B.C., quite, quite a distance, but then it puts an ending point at the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Well, if you overlap all of these strands of the fuse, you end up with a window of opportunity that spans 29 B.C. to 70 A.D. Something clearly could happen that's big in that time that might explain why, it's right in the, almost in the middle of that period of time, that we flip from B.C. to A.D. Yeah. And it turns out that Jesus appears in that window, in a very small window of history, which Jesus must appear to have this amazing impact that he has. And then, so the book kind of looks at, well, what's, well how, how do I get to that window? Can I show it to you? That's where he appears. And then let me show you what happens after he appears. And it turns out you can reconstruct the story of Jesus in the most unexpected places. Well, and I, I've often thought, you know, in the work I do with progressive Christianity where uh, substitutionary atonement is yes. so critiqued, and yes. often they'll say, well, they were just copying the cultures right. around them. They were looking around and people were making sacrifices to their deities, trying to appease yes. their gods and things like that. And I've always thought, well, what if, though, those other surrounding nations had sort of an inkling of truth about the yes. way things work and they were sort of predicting that in a way by assigning that to their yes. gods and then Jesus brings the real yes. thing. And so you articulated that in your book in such a, a cool way to show that there were expectations people had Absolutely. for these deities, that well, Jesus fulfilled all of those. Yes, things. if you think that God is all powerful, then he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection. So then you know there's a difference between you as being morally imperfect and a God that would be all powerful and therefore free of moral imperfections. Now we're all thinking about, well, how do we bridge this divide? So it's not, it doesn't shock me to think that we would come, would think sometimes you get closer to the mark than others. This is what Paul is really saying on Mars Hill. I see that you people are very, very much involved in worshiping God. You even have a, a God a temple here or a, a marker here to the unknown God. It's like we, we actually, he's basically saying you've all thought about this pretty well. Mm -hmm. But it turns out I'm here to tell you today about the God who meets all of those expectations. Yeah. So it's clear that he kind of sensed that there was this plethora of gods that are out there. But I would put it this way in the book too. Uh, I learned this one time working undercover. We were sitting in a neighborhood where it was all residential burglaries and it's the worst way to work a case is to sit in a geographic surveillance because you don't know if this guy's ever even going to show up, right? And so we're sitting there and we had a bunch of residential burglaries there. And sure enough, as we're sitting in this neighborhood in different places, we hear a call go out on the radio the, the, for the patrol cars that a burglary had just occurred. And we're like, ah, two blocks away from where I'm sitting. I just was sitting in the wrong place. And I, I hear the dispatch the unit to take a uh, report. So I raced over there in my playing car and, and I hopped out of the car and I ran up to the victim who was waiting on the curb for the patrol car to get there to take a report. Because I'm thinking, hey, tell me what you saw. I'll tell my playing car units. We might still be able to catch this guy. He might still be in the neighborhood. So tell me what you saw. He wouldn't even talk to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, it's because I looked pretty bad. I mean, I, I had long hair. I was in shorts in a playing car. He had called for a police to take a report, a police officer. I was a police officer, but he didn't recognize me as such. And so he would not cooperate with me. Then the police car shows up. This dude walks out in a uniform. He's like, all of a sudden, he's real talkative. He's telling the whole story. So I realized that if, if the expector and the expectations are connected. So if I can meet your expectations, I'm going to be, be far more uh, successful in communicating to you, far more successful in influencing you. But I have to meet the expectations of the expector. Yeah. And in this case, what God does is he comes and he meets the expectations of all of the prior expe expectors yeah. of history who were thinking about him. So to me, I never looked at those 
like similarities and said, oh, he was copied. Because it, honestly, if you examine, right. they're so broad. They're similar only in the broadest possible sense. They are not similar. And so if I say, well, yeah, if you're thinking about God, you probably think he came into the world in an unusual, supernatural way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always mean it's a virgin conception. Mithras was born out of the side of a mountain, right. leaving a, the cave, right? So, yeah. But the point is, yes, if you think there's a God who's supernatural, he's probably going to do everything in a supernatural way, include coming into the world in the supernatural. Why would that surprise you? Yeah. But to say that our supernatural explanation is somehow borrowed from the others is to really not know the actual mythologies that you think are being borrowed. Yeah, I always heard that uh, Mithras was had a virgin birth. Yes. And then when I investigated further, I, actually, I think by listening to some of your uh, podcasts, I learned, oh, well, he was sort of coming, he came out of the side of a rock. Right. Well, I guess if the rock's a virgin, yes. you know, you so can, you can count, stretch this. Also, they'll say he's born in a cave. Right. Well, in the sense that he leaves a hole in the mountain after he's born out of the right. side of the mountain, you could. You see how you got to stretch yeah. that to yeah. make that work. So I think in that sense, it's really. And also, I don't know why you would think for a second that a group, a Jewish sect, would think it could persuade Jews of the deity of Christ by borrowing pagan mythologies. Right. I think that would be a hard sell. Yeah. It would but be. interestingly, it's not just that the expectations of the pagans or and I say pagans, I mean non-Christian or non-Jews. Um, but also, there's a rich history of Jewish history in which you see the rhyme of history. Not that history is ever repeated. I've often heard it said that, that history is, it rhymes. It doesn't necessarily repeat. But you'll see that the descriptions of Moses, of Jonah, of Joshua, they are very similar to mm -hmm. Jesus. And so you would recognize the person of Jesus just in its rough sketch of who Jesus is if you were a Jew who was familiar with your own Jewish history. So what this, this is an opportunity then, by, based on prophecy and on all the prior mythologies, for God to come into to the world and meet the expectations of the pagans as he's meeting the expectations of the Jews. Yeah. So it's just a perfect alignment of, of history. That's great. Well, we're going to have you back for a full-length podcast episode about you know when the book comes out. Yes. Cause I, I'm really excited reading this. I feel like you're giving people such a great resource to really understand how all of these things sort of tie together and connect to this person of interest, this Jesus. But I, I want to ask you one question very quickly because this is something that... I have uh, sort of gotten wrong in the past as an okay. apologist. I'm so, gonna get it wrong too, so here we no, go. No, no, actually, so so just to give a little backstory, I had always read that mm -hmm. if all of the New Testament documents were destroyed, yes. we could take the quotes of the early church fathers yes. and reconstruct all of the New Testament except for like 11 verses. Now, right. the first time I met you, you probably don't even remember this, but it was at Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, I gave my presentation and I said that. And when we were finished, you said, that is actually uh, apocryphal. That is not, not true. proven yeah. true. And I was like, but I read it in I an know. apologetics book. I know. But what I love, though, is you have done the research now, and you've corrected this argument. And so I, I want to ask you, what would happen? What would we be able to know if all of the New Testament manuscripts and every New Testament was just vanished and was gone? Yes. What what would we have? Yes. Okay. So so I don't know that I would need to reconstruct all of the New Testament in order to have a complete reconstruction of the person of Jesus, right? So right. if I had, for example, a percentage of a of a, a sentence uh, that I could not reconstruct, the sentence might read rougher, but sit, mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have with Jesus. They're, they're the percentages of recoverable information, not just from voices that are church voices 
but from voices that are non-church voices is pretty high. That's what I tried to do in one chapter of the book. But I wanted to be fair about that. You cannot reconstruct everything but 11 verses. I don't know where that actually began, but uh, I knew where, where they would cite certain sources for this, and I went back and bought those sources to see if that was true. Uh, when I was writing Cold Case Christianity, I had heard that, but I just never thought that was true, and it's not. But enough of the story of Jesus, dramatically, you will not miss anything. Look, in the end, if you didn't have the episode of the healing of Peter's mother, let's say, which by the way you do, but if you don't have that reconstructed, would that give you doubt about the important issues of the virgin birth, the ministry, the miracles worked by Jesus, the death, resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, none of that would change if I missed a particular element from Mark. Mm -hmm. And what you have is, and by the way, a lot of these are parallel accounts. So if I'm missing something that hasn't been cited in antiquity about Mark, but the parallel account in Luke has been cited, it isn't being replaced. So the, uh, the entirety, and what I try to do in the book is to give you lists of what is the data that you can recollect from, and, and I would say I went all the way to the uh, uh, Edict of Milan. So my, my question was, in the earliest years, centuries of Christianity, when it's most persecuted, what can I, because that's when I would expect it to be hard to maintain the story. Right. Once you're established as the Roman Empire's, uh, you know, uh, religion, yeah. well, then everything is just going to be rubber stamped, right? right? But it's in those earliest years when you're kind of on the run and got one group over here, one group over here, one group over here. I want to know how much of the story is changing and staying the same in those earliest three centuries. And so that's what I focused on was the three centuries of Christian voices, of non-Christian voices, which includes, you know, Romans, Greeks, Persians, and, um, and Jews who had data about Jesus that they offered. Um, and I wanted to, can you reconstruct it? Here's why I say that. If you think you can erase the story of Jesus by simply destroying the New Testament, good luck with that. You have to destroy yeah. the largest body of literature in the history of humans, because more has been written about Jesus than any other historical character. I've got a couple different sources for and that. And you document this yeah, in your book. You're not just saying this, that. Right. You, you more has been written about Jesus. Data, and think yeah. about that. Of any other historical character, why would that be the case, right? You would think that there'd be some world leader that would be actually written about more yeah. than Jesus of yeah. Nazareth, but that's not true. Uh, more music has been sung. I went back and looked at the entire top 100 artists of all time and just popular music. Now, forget about history. Popular music today, if you look at the top 100 artists under three different things, Billboard, Rolling Stones, and IMDb, you know about 150 artists and bands. Look at each one of those collection of music. You will see that every single one, from rap artist to country to whatever it is, everyone sings about Jesus. That's interesting to me. Yeah. That that would be the case, right? This kind of influence. You'd have to basically ruin the, uh, destroy the music collection of every major artist in the history of music, starting really with antiquity. You can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus and the deepest theological claims of Christianity just from the first 300 years of of, of hymns that were sung by the earliest Christians. So if you lost all the scripture, but you still had the hymns, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus. Wow. So it's just the imprint is, I mean, you could reconstruct, at one point I said, you know, you don't know if you realize this or not, but all the three modern universities that gave birth to the universities we know today, Paris, Oxford, Bologna, those are the three that are they're started by Christians. Christians yeah. started the university movement as we experience universities today. And the top 10 universities in the world are all still universities that were founded by Christians. If you just toured those top 10 universities and looked only at the buildings, because a lot of the early teaching in those universities was done in chapels that still exist. 
And if all you did was look at the buildings and the charters of the top one, top 10 universities in the world today, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus in its Amazing. entirety. You have a hard time erasing Jesus from history. He's had that kind of impact. And it strikes me as like, how can that be? How can one person, I was at all the other world leaders, you won't even recognize half their names. Yeah. I was at all the other deities, you won't even recognize half their names. I was at all the other people in the first century that might cause that change from AD to BC, you won't recognize their names. How is it that this guy, who's a nobody, who was born in a small village and didn't travel very far from that village, never had a family, never had a social media platform, never commanded an army, never wrote a book, never wrote a concert, never did anything like this. Mm -hmm. This guy changes the world and can be, has fingerprints can be found in everything mm -hmm. else. How could that be? Now, it yeah. seems to me, though, if there's a God who created the plan everything and then shows up in his own history, that he would have exactly this kind of impact on history. Mm -hmm. So I think there's really strong reasons to believe in the deity of Christ yeah. just from the fuse and the fallout of history. Well, this is a question that's especially personal for me because early in my journey of doubt, one of the claims that I was trying to wrestle with was this idea that, well, I was told, you know, there's no information about Jesus outside the Bible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can kind of toss that aside. But I love your book because it shows us you really cannot escape the gospel, even if you got no, rid of every Bible. So yeah. tell us the title of the book and when it's coming out and when we can be looking for that. It's called, I'm, I'm going to remember the subtitles. I know. <laughs> We're still so early in this process, but it's called Person of Mentors for Person sure. It's why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. So okay. the idea here is that even if you didn't embrace what the Bible teaches about Jesus, Jesus still matters. And to me, as an atheist for 35 years, the stuff that mattered to me was really the arts. Yeah. Uh, music. Love music. I was, you know, played in worship teams like you, you obviously did a lot more than I have. So, but also, you know, literature. Um, education was important to me. Science is important to me. All of those things are indebted to Jesus in a way that cannot be explained unless he is who he said he was. Yeah. And so those are the things that even if he matters, even if you don't think he matters, because it turns out the stuff that you do think matters is indebted to him. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that he matters to all of us, even if you're a Christian or not. It's sort of like the, the Bob Dylan effect. I call it the Bob Dylan effect. Everybody knows a Bob Dylan song, yes. even if they've never heard Bob Dylan right, sing. Because right, he's written it. so many of the That's songs right, that yeah. people cover. Well, yeah. I am so excited to have you back for a full episode to talk more about all of your research and it's great to be with you yeah, and thanks for answering great. thanks a for having questions. me i appreciate it well i'm here with thaddeus williams author of the book confronting injustice without compromising truth this is a phenomenal book i was honored to be able to endorse this this really good book this book tackles a lot of really hot button cultural mm -hmm. topics surrounding things like gender identity ethnicity race racism and I think that some of the terms we're hearing in culture are just volatile right now. We're hearing yeah. things like whiteness, white fragility, white privilege. Uh, it seems like if you're a white male, people don't really want to hear what you have to say. And yeah. so there's, a, there's just a lot of confusion, I think, in our culture. We're hearing racism being defined as prejudice plus power sure. rather than just having a prejudice against someone because of their ethnicity or the color of their skin. Yeah. So help us entangle some of these knots. Yeah. I mean, I'm just throwing a bomb right at you. So <laughs> That's you can exactly. I, I hear you talking and asking it. a question, throwing out these terms, and what I'm actually hearing is like, Here's a landmine. Let me get that one right. Yeah. Here's another landmine. Now walk through this for us in like yes, five minutes. Please, so please do. I'm just going to trip all the landmines all at once here. Um, so you raised terms like whiteness um, and the idea that uh, to quote 
someone who I'll keep nameless, uh, made the claim at a conference, this was two years ago, quote, whiteness is wickedness. Mm. And so there's this whole ideology that wants to describe injustice and oppression and evil by appealing to uh, a color. Mm -hmm. That's something scripture doesn't do. Right. Um, where does the term come from with that usage? Well, it comes from a white feminist liberal scholar um, by the name of Judith Katz uh, from the 1970s. You asked about uh, racism as privilege plus power, mm -hmm. uh, or excuse me, uh, prejudice plus power equals racism. Well, that comes from the early 1970s, um, a white feminist liberal uh, by the name of Patricia Biddle Patfa. Interesting. And, and you see all these terms that we're now um, being bombarded with and all of our diversity training and you see it in, in Super Bowl ads, it's in you know Gillette shaving ads, it's just everywhere. This is becoming the new conversation. Mm -hmm. you, t you take the term white fragility, that one pops up a lot. Lo and behold, a white female liberal feminist critical race theorist by the name of Robin D'Angelo. Uh, you take the idea of white privilege that's all over our national conversation mm -hmm. right now. And lo and behold, you have a white liberal female. Um, I'm seeing a theme here. <laughs> you see, it's starting to yeah. emerge here. That was Peggy McIntosh's term. And so here's what I find is, in a lot of these conversations, there's a sense of, well, we wanna hear the black voice. We wanna hear from um, BIPOC, uh, black indigenous people of color, because we've ignored that voice for too long. Mm -hmm. And I wanna say, amen, let's hear all these voices, especially if they feel like they've been silenced in the church, let's hear those voices, but let's not confuse their voices with the white liberal feminist voice mm -hmm. that has really monopolized these conversations. Wow, yeah. And so in the book, I get into a lot of the, the hard facts on it, that what we often confuse as the people of color perspective just isn't. Mm. And that makes for a really bad conversation at the outset um, mm -hmm. that isn't now being framed by biblical categories, um, but by these categories that are constantly breaking people into oppressed versus oppressor groups. So we dive a lot deeper in here, but thanks for the question. Yeah, very good. I'm back with Thaddeus Williams, author of Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And we're just talking about hot button topics and issues going on. And in your book, you dive really deep into the nature of justice. And we're hearing this term social justice quite a bit. Can you just really quickly give us a few differences or three differences between what the world is calling social justice and maybe what true biblical justice actually is? Yeah, awesome question. How long you got? I could be here till, <laughs> till midnight next month. Um, a few basic distinctions. So God commands us not suggest that we do justice over and over and over again in the text. Justice has been defined for millennia as giving others their due. So if we're doing biblical justice, we start with the ultimate other. We start with the capital O other. We start with God. What does God do? That's going to be the beginning point, the, the first of the Ten Commandments, right? Bible trivia, I'm going to put you on the spot. First of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the greatest commandment. Oh, first of the ten. It, it was a trick question. It was a trick question. Cut, cut. I failed. Failed. <laughs> failed the test there from the Bible professor. You shall professor. have no other gods before me. Boom. There you go. You totally redeemed that. Thank you. Um, I was just kidding. There's one for the bloopers, the outtakes. <laughs> That's 
credibility yes, shot. Yes, gone. Uh, <laughs> so the first of the Ten Commandments, have no gods before God. And so that's the entry point. You, you analyze any kind of injustice through history. Take uh, racist slavery in the antebellum South. Yes, it's a horizontal sin of creature against creature, of white people arbitrarily asserting their supremacy over people with more melanin in their skin cells. That's straight up sin. Mm -hmm. That's injustice. But it's also vertically unjust because it is making something other than God supreme, right? It's making skin tone, it's making whiteness supreme rather than the creator. Mm -hmm. And that's Paul's whole argument in Romans 1. When he's talking about all these different forms of injustice, he says it all goes back to, are we worshiping the creator or the creation? So that's where we'd start. If you're reading a lot of today's social justice literature or the tweets or following the social media mobs, God's just out of the question. So that's the first point of departure. A second one, I'll, I'll keep this one real quick. The Bible champions love that's not easily offended. Mm. What I call in the book Social Justice B actually encourages us to be offended. It's a mark of virtue. Mm. The more quickly triggered you are, the more woke you are. This would be more the cultural definition. Of the cultural justice. definition of social yeah. justice actually inspires mm. offendedness. Yeah. Uh, a third quick difference is if we're doing justice God's way, we should be marked by love and joy mm. and peace and the fruit of the spirit, mm. right? But if we're doing it in, with what's trending right now, and I, I've seen it firsthand, the justice pursuits are marked by the anti-fruit of the spirit. So it's, it's marked by resentment. It's marked by unfettered rage. It's marked by assuming the worst of other people's motives all the time. Mm -hmm. It's marked by chronic offendedness and, and self-righteousness. And so that's one of the dead giveaways we're dealing with something other than biblical justice is you can judge the tree by its fruit. So mm -hmm. there's three um, differences. There's like a hundred more in this book. So there you <laughs> awesome. go. Awesome. That's, that's a lot to chew on. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for your time. Well, I'm here at the Maven Conference with Sean McDowell. We've just finished uh, all our talks and everything. Yeah. So one of the things I heard, Sean, you talking about today at one of the luncheons was all of this research on Gen Z. This mm -hmm. is the generation that's roughly 20 and under. Yep. Uh, the Barna Impact 360 has recently released research on their emotional lives, their views on spirituality, mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of things about Gen Z. And as I was reading the research, I was noticing some really specific characteristics about this generation. And I know you, you've really engaged with this research. And my question was, when we look at kids roughly 20 and under, mm -hmm. what is it about the way they see the world, the way they're engaging with the world mm -hmm. that might actually make them vulnerable to a false version of Christianity, if anything? That's a great question with this generation. So one of the unique things about Gen Z that the study has shown is that terms that are used are like post-Christian. And that term is not meant to imply that we had this golden age of Christianity in America. That's not the point. Yeah. But Bible reading is down, attending church is down, and there seems to be a stronger influence by the secular worldview, even amongst many Christians. So uh, Jean Twenge writes this in her book, iGen. She says they are really the first non-religious generation mm. that we have. Now you look at millennials, and there was a lot more baggage, you might say, from going to youth group, bad experiences in the church. There are some of that, but statistically that's a lot less than say previous generations. 
So this recent volume two on the Gen Z study showed that they're much more of a blank slate in terms of their worldview and their belief system. So in one sense, it's like, that's good. They don't have the animosity and maybe the layers to work through when it comes to Christianity. But on the flip side, that's potentially bad because they're open to any worldview to come in, mm. including a false worldview and a, or a false gospel. So especially with it, because of smartphones, everybody has access to this generation. And few of them lack the ability to really discern truth from error, that they're open to whatever feels good, whatever's appealing, whoever the people they like believes and embracing their gospel rather than the gospel of Jesus, of the mm. scriptures, of the historic Christian faith. Wow. So on the flip side of that, is there something we can really be hopeful about as far as what might actually uh, make them more apt to accept the real gospel? Is there something that we can look at in the research that can actually help us with evangelism with this group? Well, one of the things this generation is drawn to, I think, is authenticity. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's marketing to them every moment of their life. Watch this, click on this, buy this. They feel that nonstop. But when somebody's like, no, I'm actually not just trying to sell you something. I actually care about you. And they come across as a real person. I think many in this generation are willing to listen. Now, some advertisements and celebrities have masked the fakeness of this right. and are not genuine. But the gospel calls us not to be hypocrites, which ironically means to put on a mask and to actually care about people and to actually love people. And especially because the mental health, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, the suicidality is higher with this generation. Mm. I think the authenticity of the gospel, the authenticity of relationships is one powerful way to minister to this generation to consider the truth and beauty of the gospel. That's great. Where can people go to learn more about these statistics and just some of these things we're learning about Gen Z? Uh, I would say two things. One is the recent Barna study on Gen Z. Volume one and volume two are the two best that I suggest. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace and I took a lot of that research and put it in our book so the next generation will know. That's only one chapter where we just summed up all the evidence and like here's 12 things about Gen Z, then it's a really how to minister, parent, reach this generation. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. You bet. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you receive your podcasts, would you please give us a good review? It really helps get the word out to more people. If you like video, many of these answers are already up on YouTube in the video format. So you can go over to YouTube, subscribe. It also helps if you like and comment on the videos, just signals the powers that be to put it into the news feeds of more people, gets the word out. So thanks so much, you guys, and we'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.